0: Well, good morning, everyone. It is wonderful to see you here today uh, at the Vista. Glad to see we survived, it was apparently our annual February blizzard here in Texas, which is fantastic. Don't know where this is coming from. I assume it's all the people moving here have brought this weather with you. And you need to send that back, okay? We don't want any of that here. We are glad to have you, though. Uh, great to have you at Vista if it's your first time here, especially. We hope that you feel loved, welcomed, and wanted, that you fit right in and make yourself at home here at the Vista. Today we're in the fifth week of our series called This is Water, series where we are uh, talking about some things that we are all so immersed in, absorbed in certain movements and ideas and behaviors and ways of thinking that we're all so absorbed in that it can be difficult for us to see and understand them. As the old adage goes, right, it's, it's tough to do what with a fish. It's tough to talk to a fish about water. Because a fish doesn't know that water exists because for a fish all that exists is water. And so my, my fellow fish, we've been talking about the water together for the past few weeks. We've talked about identity, about the modern struggle with it. We have talked about technology. Last week, Dave did an awesome job talking about uh, individuality. And so today we're going to continue talking about the water together, but we're going to open up our Bibles first. So if you got them, go to Matthew 10. It'll be up here on the screen as well, but Matthew 10. And as you turn there, I'll set the scene for you. Uh, Jesus has summoned the 12 disciples and he is giving them instructions for their first big mission. By all accounts, this is really the first time Jesus sends them out completely on their own. And so the instructions that he gives here are of enormous consequence. So, Matthew 10, we'll read verse 1 and 5 to kind of set the scene. Then we'll pick it up in verse 16 and read through the rest of it. Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Verse 5, these 12 Jesus then sent out after instructing them. Pick it up now in verse 16. We'll read clean through. Jesus says, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. But beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues, and you will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they hand you over, don't worry about how or what you're going to say, for it will be given to you in that hour what you're going to say. For it is not you who speak, but it is the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. Now, brother's going to betray brother to death. And a father his child, and a child will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name, but it is the one who is endured to the end who will be saved. But whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. Now a disciple is not above his teacher nor a slave above his master. It's enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and the slave like his master. So if they have called the head of the household Beelzebul, how much more will they align the members of his household? Therefore do not fear them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the darkness, you speak in the light, and what you hear whispered in your ear, you proclaim it upon the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell are not two sparrows sold for a single cent, and yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But the very hairs on your head are all numbered, no matter how high or low God has to count. So do not fear, because you are much more valuable than many sparrows. Matthew 10, verses 16 through 31. So uh, we're going to start off with one of my favorite things to do. We're going to do a little internal vista polling. So I'd like to see a a show of hands for all of us who believe, who feel like the world is becoming a more and more dangerous place. Show of hands if we feel like the world is becoming, yep, a more and more dangerous place. The overwhelming majority of us. This is, of course... uh, in line with a lot of very professional polling, slightly more professional than what we just did, that shows this very clear and consistent trend in which the overwhelming majority of people believe that the world is becoming a more and more dangerous place. Uh, for example, the most recent polling shows that around 80% of Americans believe that America is becoming more dangerous right believe that for example crime is up in our country uh, you name it violence is up in our country and while this number 80% it's the highest it's been in a really long time it is in line with a very clear and consistent trend in which every year for the last 30 years an overwhelming majority of Americans have believed that America is becoming a more and more dangerous place And this helps to explain, you know, why uh, today's parents tend to be a bit more protective of our children than our parents were with us. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, I don't know about you, but man, when I was like five years old, my parents, they gave me a bike, no helmet, no helmet. I don't think they were invented yet. No helmet. They kind of taught me how to ride, and then I just set off one day to explore the neighborhood, and I didn't return until I was 16 and needed to trade in my bike for a car. (laughs) Anybody else? Your childhood? I was just gone one day, man, I I explored the neighborhood, I went, I traveled the world on my huffy, I went off to war, I returned a decade later, my mom didn't even know I had been gone, honest to God. She's like, I wondered why you missed dinner for a decade, I thought you were at Timmy's house. And again, this is, you know, this is how a lot of us grew up, and this is not how we raise our kids anymore, and most of us would put out an Amber Alert, if our kids checked the mailbox without permission, I should know we have done it. And again, this is unfortunate, it's unfortunate in a lot of ways, but, um, we have to, and we have to because the world is becoming a more and more dangerous place. But is it really? Is it really like? Is the world really becoming a more and more dangerous place? I mean, we've established that we all feel like it is, but is it really? And here's where things get very, very interesting. Because according to literally any and every objective measure or metric or statistic, the answer to that question is a resounding no. No. No, the world is absolutely, positively, indisputably not becoming more and more dangerous. In fact, not only is the world not becoming more and more dangerous, but according to any and every objective measure or metric or statistic, the world is becoming safer and safer. And not only is the world becoming safer and safer, but according to any and every objective measure or metric or statistic, we, and by which I mean we modern Western American people, we are the safest people in the history of the world. I know you might might be a little confused by this. How could this be so? Let's go through the numbers a little bit here. For example, despite our very consistent belief that, for example, crime is getting worse and worse and worse, every year for the last 30 years we say, oh, it's getting worse and worse and worse, violence actually has been on the decline for decades, especially violent crime, and it is at a nearly all-time low right now. For example, here's the graph showing the rate of homicides in Europe stretching all the way back to the 1300s. 700 years of murder, okay? And what do we see in this trend? Down and to the right. Down and to the right. And uh, for another example, here's a graph of the violent and property crime rates in America. Over the last 30 years, so violent crimes, violent victimizations, property crimes, property victimizations. What do you see in all these graphs? Down and to the right, down and to the right, down and to the right, down and to the right. And then despite the uh, very frequent alarmism about the, the huge rise in like, natural catastrophes, you know, things like hurricanes and earthquakes and famines and wildflowers, despite all the alarmism about things like that, there's been a 92% decline in the natural disaster death toll over the last 100 years. For example, in the 1920s, 5.4 million people died from natural disasters. In the 2010s, the decade we just exited, 400,000 people died from natural disasters. Five million less people died of natural disasters. Steven Pinker is a world-renowned psychologist at Harvard, and listen to how he describes our current situation. He says, violence has been in decline for thousands of years, and today we may be living in the most peaceable era in the existence of our species. All of which to say, we live longer. We live way longer than anybody else did. In the least violent and safest moment in human history. That's what the facts say. And that brings us to one last fact. One of the saddest statistics that you 're ever going to come across in the United States, there are currently two point five times as many suicides as homicides every year. Think about that in the United States, there are two point five times as many suicides as homicides every year and maybe you 're like me and you 've been vaguely aware of something called a, a mental health crisis you 've sense something different in our collective psyche, but we need to get a more explicit grip on what is going on right now. Namely, we have entered this really odd and unprecedented moment in human history where we are all far more likely to take our own lives than we are to have somebody else take it from us. Think about how weird that is for a second. For all of human history, humans had to worry about what? What? Everything. Right? We had to worry about polio and wildfires and wild animals and death by dysentery on the Oregon Trail. Any of you play Oregon Trail growing up? Any of you ever make it? Nope. You lost half the family when you crossed that river and then all the rest of them died of dysentery. Right? Nobody made it across the Oregon Trail. It was a death trap. And now that we don't really have to worry about any of those things anymore, we don't have to worry about any of those things anymore. We are still somehow so worried so anxious, so depressed, so overwhelmed that we are taking our own lives at an astonishing rate that's never been seen before. And this brings us to a really, really delicate question, but it's a question that needs to be asked. How did we become so fragile? How did we become so fragile? And to be clear, this is not one of those like, Rub some dirt on it and quit being a modern sissy who has feelings sort of question, okay? That's not what this is. But this is a question that we need to ask and ask the right way because we are, by point of fact, becoming more fragile. We are more sensitive to risk. We are more prone to anxiety, depression, and mental unhealth. We are more likely to find life unacceptably hard and dangerous. Why is that? That brings us back to our text this morning. Jesus, he's given the guys the big, the big pregame speech. You know, and the first part of it's awesome. He says, Hey, you're gonna, you're gonna raise the dead, you're gonna cleanse lepers, you're gonna cast out demons because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's pretty exciting stuff. But then Jesus' big pregame speech, it turns a little bit grim, doesn't it? Verse 16, he says, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. I am not a rancher, nor a shepherd. But we watch enough. National Geographic and Fisher Household for me to know that this is not a particularly reassuring metaphor, is it? I send you out a sheep in the midst of wolves. And then Jesus proceeds to flesh out this very grim metaphor with some very grim details. He says, hey, here's what's going to go down. Uh, you're going to be arrested. You'll be physically beaten. You'll be hated. You'll be persecuted. And then he sums it all up by saying, hey, do not fear those who can kill the body, but they can't kill the soul. Which is what you say to somebody who What? Probably about to get their body killed, right? That's what you tell somebody who's about to die. And, of course, according to tradition, uh, most of the apostles, they were killed, right? According to tradition, Judas hung himself, Peter's crucified upside down in Rome, James, son of Zebedee, is executed by Herod, other James stoned and then clubbed to death, Andrew, crucified in Greece, Thomas, speared to death by uh, soldiers, Philip, murdered by Roman authorities. Matthew, stabbed to death in Ethiopia. Bartholomew, martyred Simon. Martyred Matthias, was burned alive, which leads John, the writer of Revelation. John the Revelator is the only apostle who died of natural causes, though in his case, dying of natural causes meant he was tortured and burned alive in oil before being condemned to life in prison, working manual labor in the rock quarries of a prison island called Patmos. Now, I'm also not an expert in statistical analysis, but I feel like I can sense some kind of trend here. I wish I could put my finger on it. but. <laughs> Aaron Baggett here, he's a professor. He'll figure this out for us. And this brings us to another very important text. This is written by one of those many martyred apostles. This is from Peter. First Peter 4, 12-14. It says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of His glory you may rejoice with exaltation. If you're reviled for the name of Christ, you're blessed. Because the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Let's let this first line sink in. Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you. Do not be surprised when you get thrown into the fire. Do not be surprised when life is hard and mean and unsafe, especially if you're a Christian. Why? Well, because to be a Christian is to be destined to suffer. is to accept that our commitment to act as if Jesus is Lord will entail suffering in a world committed to denying that Jesus is Lord. As Paul put it in 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul says, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus we'll be persecuted. All is uh, a very comprehensive word, isn't it? All means all. That's what my mom taught me in my English class. And if there's anything, though, I know about myself, it's that when suffering comes into my life, I never fail to be surprised by it. Anybody else? Anytime something difficult happens to me, I'm always just shocked. That things did not go my way. It could be big, it could be a huge thing, death of the loved one, or it could be very small. Chick-fil-A forgets to put that delicious Polynesian sauce in my bag, and I'm like, why, Lord? Do you not? <laughs> you see your servant choking down these dry, sauceless nuggets with no Polynesian sauce? Are you Are you even real? <laughs> and so how does this happen? Right? Think about this. How could Jesus be so clear? Right, we just read it. Jesus is so clear that we should expect and accept risk and suffering. We all agree Jesus was very clear about that. And yet, during the most safe, least violent era of human existence, we are still somehow so overwhelmed by the prospect of risk and suffering, even though there's less of it in the world than there's ever been, that we literally do not know how to cope with it. How's that happen? we're going to do a little more internal polling. I understand if you don't feel comfortable participating in this one, but if you do, I would love for you to. Show of hands for any of us who either have or have had peanut allergies. Just not many. Yeah, really not many people, just, just a couple of people. Now, however, if I were to walk over into the student room, if I were to go into to Wired to the kids' environments, and I, and I asked them what would happen, hands would flop everywhere. Y'all know this, if I threw a PBJ there, it would be a mass casualty event. It would be terrible. <laughs> like a grenade went off. And so what's very interesting about the peanut allergies is that up until recently, they've been very rare. That's why almost none of us in here have had them. But then over the last 30 years, we have seen this explosion in peanut allergies among our kids. Y'all know this, you can't send and Js to school anymore. According to the best 30 uh, I could find, uh, the uh, peanut allergy rate over the last 30 years has about tripled. It's a little more than tripled over the last 30 years. Isn't that weird? And so what in the world is going on? Why are the peanuts in revolt? Why are they unionized against our immune systems? It's a very complicated question. So people want to know this thing. We didn't know why, but we knew that it was happening. So we did the sensible and compassionate thing. And what did we do? We started getting very protective about exposing our kids to peanuts. I know about y'all, but the, the time my first kid got to eat peanuts, it was in a hospital surrounded by a thousand EpiPens, just in case. You know? <laughs> so we all did this, and the weirdest thing happened. The peanut allergies just got worse. And so eventually, this really big study was done on this. It's for thrill. It's called the LEAP study learning about early and adolescent peanut something, 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 blah, 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 blah. And the study found. That peanut allergies were surging because parents had started overly protecting their children from exposure to peanuts. In other words, when children are responsibly exposed to peanuts at an early age, they tend to develop an immune response to peanuts. Whereas children who are completely shielded from exposure to peanuts from an early age are much more prone to develop an allergic response. To peanuts, if you're in the medical field, and I know we have a lot of people who are this makes sense to you, right? Because this is how our immune systems work. Healthy, responsible exposure to a range of food and bacteria help us become more long-term resilient, because resilience requires exposure. Got it? Resilience requires exposure. And can you see the, uh, can you see the boomerang come back around now? Because if resilience requires exposure, then this means that the safer we get, the more fragile we become. The safer we get, the more fragile we become. Jonathan Haidt is a fantastic sociologist at NYU, probably the best one working right now. He wrote a really interesting book about this a few years ago called The Coddling of the American Mind. Coddling of the American Mind. We have our Stefan Elders read this book. And in it, he coins the term safetyism to describe the modern obsession with safety. And safety is a very easy thing to get obsessed with, isn't it? I think it is. Because the more safety you get, the more of it you feel like you need. Similar to a drug addiction, the more safety you get, what happens? The lower your tolerance for risk becomes. And so you need higher and higher doses of safety in order to feel safe. And so it's this really vicious cycle wherein no matter how much safety you get, you still don't feel safe enough because you could always feel safer. And so your tolerance for risk gets lower and lower and lower and lower. And you come to find life feeling unbearably difficult and uh, unmanageable. All this to say the over-pursuit of safety does not make us safe. It makes us fragile. The over-pursuit of safety does not, it cannot, by design, make us safe. It just makes us fragile. And there is no simple cure here for our current dilemma in regards to fragility and safetyism. But I do think the diagnosis can be helpful. And then I do think there's some deep biblical wisdom that can be of even more help. So let's go back to our text one last time. Verses 28 through 31. Listen to what Jesus says. He says, Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a single cent, and yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But the very hairs on your head are all numbered. So do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. Do not fear. Did you know that this is the most common command in the Bible? Do not fear. More common than than don't sin, more common than be holy, more common than love God, more common than love people. Do not fear is the most common command in the Bible, which seems to imply, right, that God understands we struggle with fear, that it's our greatest struggle. And so Jesus says, hey, do not fear. But when he explains why, did you notice he doesn't say what we would like him to say, does he? He doesn't say, hey, do not fear because I'll keep you safe. No, rather Jesus kind of says the exact opposite, doesn't he? He says, hey, do not fear even though you're probably going to die because those people who can kill your body can't kill your soul. That's what he says. And then in verse 31 he says the same thing in a different way. He says, look, don't fear. God has taken joyful responsibility for even the sparrows. And yet you are much more valuable than many sparrows look I know that life can be hard and mean and unsafe and so without belittling or minimizing any of that we do need to let Jesus gently but firmly remind us that the ultimate remedy for our fragility is not safety No, the ultimate remedy for our fragility is what? It's trust, right? This is so simple. I'm going to say it again. The ultimate remedy for our fragility is not, and it cannot be safety because life will never be safe. The ultimate remedy for our fragility is trust because what Christ says to us is not, do not fear because I'll keep you safe. What Jesus says is do not fear because you can trust me and you can trust me even in death. And if that doesn't strike you as incredibly good news, then I just need to remind everybody in here, hey, ain't nobody getting out of life alive, man. Nobody's going to make it. I had the privilege of sitting with a man from Vista who was dying this week. He was at peace. He lived a good life. He was surrounded by his family. That's what he said to me. Austin, I know that nobody's getting out of life alive. I get that, and I'm ready. I love the way my man Stan howard puts this. He's my favorite theologian. Stan says, God has not promised us safety, but participation in an adventure called the kingdom. Now, that seems to me to be great good news in a world that is literally dying of boredom. God has entrusted us, his church, with the best story in the world. But with great ingenuity, we have managed with the aid of much theory to make that story boring as hell. And so the good news of the gospel is not that Jesus will keep us safe. That's not the good news of the gospel. But rather that Jesus has called us into lives that are responsibly risky. And we are okay with that because we understand that our salvation, it runs through the grave, not around the grave, right? That's how this thing works. We go dead through the belly of it just like Jesus Christ did. And so we are not anxiously obsessed with being safe at all cost because we've got better things to do than be safe, don't we? I think we do. We've got to be merciful. We got to be sacrificial. We have to be faithful at all costs, not safe at all costs. I want to end with this proverb. It's a really great proverb about candles, fire, and the wind. So if you got a candle, you know, let's pretend it's Christmas Eve. We've all got our candles. If you got a candle and you blow on it, what happens? Whew, she gone. Done, just like that. Doesn't take much blow to blow out a candle. If you got a fire, you blow on it. You pump some wind into it. What happens? <sighs> yeah. Blows up. It gets stronger. So instead of being a candle, always worried about whether or not you're safe enough, but never feeling safe enough because you could always be safe and your tolerance risk is getting lower and lower and lower and lower. Your flame, lower and lower, and lower, and lower. Instead of being a candle, you be the fire and you wish for the wind. You welcome the wind. Now listen, I don't know. What kind of flame you're working with today, all right? I know that some Sundays I come in here, oh, Lord, man, it is just barely flickering. I get it. I do. But one of the things I love about church, about gathering together, being in small groups on Sunday mornings for worship, one of the things I love about church is that we gather together, all of us with our little bitty candles. We throw them into the middle. We watch it grow into this bonfire, and then we walk out of here with flamethrowers, baby, not candles. And so, church, I want you to receive this blessing, this admonition that I feel comfortable saying comes from your Lord. Do not fear, but not because Christ will keep you safe. he will not, you will die. Do not fear because Christ has overcome the grave. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Gracious God, thank you for the gift of today. We do not deserve to be here. We are not entitled to the breath in our lungs the food in our bellies. We come before you and we confess. God, I I confess on my own behalf and on behalf of all my friends in this room this morning that for all sorts of reasons, we have become obsessed with safety. And we're hooked on it. And so we just always feel like we need a little bit more and more and more. And we haven't understood the ways in which this obsession with safety compromises our capacity for faithfulness. Because Christians are not allowed to believe that safety is the most important thing. Mercy is important. Sacrifice, faithfulness, these are the things that we're willing to die for. And Jesus, you have not promised to keep us safe, but you have promised that we can trust you because you have overcome even the grave. And so we bring before you these, these little candles that we brought in here today. We ask that you would help them grow to the fire that you would then just send us back out to the world with, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.